0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Schult from the University of British Columbia. In the opening chapter of his edited volume, Social Systems and Design, out from Springer in 2014, Gary Metcalf asks if it is possible to establish ethical first principles for the design of social systems. Inspired by his mentor, Bella Banathy, a giant of the systems field, and pondering the potential levels of influence we might actually have over the evolutionary development of the social systems in which we are all embedded, Metcalf provocatively asks what sorts of goals we should set for ourselves, and what sorts of means we should use to achieve them. In the subsequent eight chapters, a host of systems-thinking luminaries, including Alexander Christakis, Peter Jones, Marilyn Emery, Thomas Flanagan, and Raúl Speo of Project Cybersyn fame offer probing and detailed contributions to the search for answers to these questions. Along the way, readers will gain an acquaintance with the concepts behind dialogical design science, co-laboratories of democracy, third-phase science, open systems theory, and much more. This volume is a transdisciplinary feast of some of the most progressive thinking going on in the systems field regarding such issues as sustainability, governance of the commons, and the maintenance and expansion of democracy. My conversation with editor Gary Metcalf is no less engaging and thought-provoking. So without any further ado, let's turn to my interview with Gary Metcalf. Gary Metcalf, welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, and thanks so much for making the time to join us. Thanks, Tom. I'm glad to be on. So um, the first thing we do on this uh, channel, as we do on uh, most of the channels on the New Books Network, is to start by asking you a question about your own um, intellectual, academic biography, so to speak, and tell us a little bit about your your journey um, and up to and including the, the present time, and um, and 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 tell us. Uh, how it unfolded and led you to uh, uh, a connection and interest and engagement with the whole field of systems and design for that matter.
1: So basically my, my career, I guess, have, um, has broken down into pretty much three, three sections. Um, my first career was as a family therapist working in runaway shelters with teenagers and their families. Um, and that was, was an interesting experience because it was really all about trying to understand how people worked. But one of the insights that came from that, now, my, my training was actually in a family, a systems-oriented family approach. So I had a lot of the, um, the concepts, but none of the theoretical background that really explained why they approached things the way they did. So the practical learning was just that adolescents simply cannot be understood in isolation. Um, you know, you, you just can't work with a teenager without understanding their family and their friends and their school and everything that creates the whole value, uh, you know, that forms their worlds. I did that for eight or nine years and then decided to make a shift and ended up in major corporations. So I worked for two different Fortune 50 corporations managing actually employee assistance and health promotion and similar kind of programs. So the focus there really was on the intersection between people as humans and family members and people as executives and employees. A lot of the same principles applied. It was just a higher level of understanding how people functioned and operated and lived within systems. My third career really started at the end of my corporate career. So in 1995, um, I started a PhD while I was still at the corporation. Now, the second corporation I worked for had been through three major reorganizations trying to basically reestablish itself and do all the things that corporations do when they're trying to get more profitable or, you know, try to to make a shift to become more functional. So I started on my PhD um, and landed at Saybrook, where I met Bela Banathy, whose work was in social systems design. Bela really became my mentor in a number of ways, uh, introducing me not only to systems concepts, which was just opening a new world to me. All of a sudden, there was a language and there were ideas and theories that explained all the stuff I had been working on, but really didn't have a foundation for prior to that. Bela also introduced me to systems organizations, both the I S and the IFSR, um, which led me into working with those organizations as they continue to support and develop the ideas and the theories and the research. And obviously, you know, Biva's introduction through his own work was to the concept of social systems design. So it was from there that I began to work on and gain more interest and more understanding and expertise about both the intersection of systems um, in a theoretical way, and the application of, of systems to social Social spheres and the design, and how we might intentionally affect those.
0: Great. And did you end up teaching at Saybrook? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I've been actually teaching at Saybrook um, in varying capacities since two thousand and three, and at other universities as well. So it's been a combination of teaching, research, consulting, um, both. You know, just kind of a constant cycle of learning and application.
0: In choosing to pursue this this publication with Springer, uh, social systems and design. what was the, the need that you were responding to as you sort of surveyed the literature and you decided to approach uh, an edited volume such as this? Um, what, was, uh, what was the guiding vision or, the, or the, what you were responding to to think this is a volume that the literature needs right now?
1: Well, in in truth, Tom, it's probably uh, an extension of my own dissertation work in my PhD. Mm. Um, you know, and even though it was probably an un, an unfinished struggle more than a, a true resolution, it was my attempt to try to get at sort of the fundamental principles. I mean, the, for me, the question was: so if we actually can consciously design the systems, um, you know, the social structures in which we live. How do we do that? What do we work with? You know, there's the concepts of, well, you know, we can envision and we can um, govern, we can do the things that happen once you've got a structure in place. But if you're truly going to design from the ground up, what are you working with? What, What does it mean to design and then create a social system? So, the, this volume was my attempt to bring together a variety of different theorists from different perspectives and backgrounds, some historical, some more theoretical, some more specifically applied to try to bring sort of that bridge between those worlds together to, to at least start that some kind of discussion and, and exploration about how do you actually design in a social system world?
0: hmm and can you say just a little bit more about how you went around uh, choosing or soliciting uh, the contributors to the volume
1: well that's always um it's always an interesting confluence of the the ideal and the reality
0: mm-hmm.
1: so you know in an ideal world um it probably would have been a larger volume more representative of other theorists and practitioners and you know a, a broader range of people who might identify themselves specifically with. Uh, design within social systems. The reality is, you only end up with the contributors that you can get at a point in time, mm-hmm. and so you know it's um, it, it always end up be, being uh, maybe a little bit different than you envisioned at the beginning. But when it was all said and done, as I've been reflecting back on the on the book this week, um, it, it really is, I think, a, a good range and confluence of different ideas, different people who've come from different backgrounds, working with different theories and theorists and how they've applied and how they've thought about and how they've approached the the central topic, but all come out and gone to varying places in, in the way that they use that.
0: Mm-hmm. And so... Some of these things you say that the, the the unfinished struggle or the things you were wrestling with you you spell out in the first chapter, which is is of course the one you authored, and you seem to be asking, you know, how do we derive the first principles for human social systems? How do we arrive at at first principles, governing principles, uh, for systems design? And um, you are bringing together thinkers that brought systems theory to social systems, and um, so as you've been reflecting on the book this week, sort of getting ready to have this, this talk together. um, Where are you on that question of the first principles for social systems? Are there some that surface in this book or some that are continuing to percolate for you or uh, where where do you stand on that now?
1: Well, the there's, I guess there's a, a small number of issues that really kind of sent me in the direction of, of thinking about this, you know, at the time the book was developing and, and continue on now. Um, one is trying to understand the nature of different kinds of systems. For instance, there's an assumption, you know, if you, if you talk with people who kind of come from a perspective of traditional psychology, for instance, you know, there's kind of an assumption that groups of people are just collections of individuals. And you can pretty much understand if you just get down to the, the basics of individuals and then you add those up and you end up with a collective. Mm. It, when you understand and have worked in and around um, you know any kind of real collective, a, a group, an organization of whatever kind, if you take just a half step back, you can see pretty soon that there are characteristics of the systems themselves that really aren't defined by or... Or actually, they, they aren't just an addition of the individuals involved. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that really leads to questions about those first principles. If you're going to actually design something that is an ongoing surviving system that isn't simply a matter of you know some kind of a fixed collective of the individuals, what are you dealing with? You know, it's it's a lot of things in terms of what people might describe. It's uh, a connection of communication. You know, it's mm. probably belief systems. It's culture. It's it's a lot of things, uh, and I don't know that I have arrived at any kind of a final answer, but you know, I I'm really I feel like I'm getting closer to uh, an understanding about where some of those distinctions actually are. Mm. The, the contrast in the chapter, I guess, is with some of the challenges of the fact that people actually are creating systems. You know, um, one of the examples is things like nation building. So, you know, the assumption is that you can go in and, you know, in the most extreme circumstances, you take a military and you remove an existing government and then somehow something emerges, emerges which is mm-hmm. hopefully better. Um, you know, that's, I guess, kind of like a my analogy, going in with a lot of weed killer into a field, um, taking out everything you don't like and assuming that you're going to have a garden grow. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's something that has to happen to create the better, that there has to be what creates that collective identity, the collective ongoing relationships, the what it is that is functional between people that allows them to continue to basically to live together as an ongoing system.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned this takes us nicely to the idea of the importance of stakeholders uh, and their participation, which is a recurring theme across the many chapters in the book, and that you you reference your 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 uh, great mentor uh, Bella Banathy and also the work of Nigel Cross and others. Um, can you say a little bit about that? Because it goes beyond simply it's nice to include people. Do you know what I mean? It's like, isn't it a nice idea to get everyone's... It's beyond that. It has to do with the, 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 the possibilities for success and robustness and, and everything else in terms of systems. So can you say a little bit about stakeholders and participation and, and why it surfaces uh, so strongly throughout the book?
1: Well, from Baylor's foundations, um, Baylor was a tremendous believer in humans and in human nature. He, he really fundamentally believed um, that people not only had a right, but also had a responsibility to contribute to the systems they lived in. And he believed in both sides of that. Now, that brings a lot of implications, though. So, you know, to say that, you know, there's some kind of an idealized democratic principle that everyone should have a voice and be involved is fine. It gets real messy when you start actually putting that into application. Um, you know, the reality is there are there are stakeholders that are have bigger voices or more power or more economic wealth to contribute or, you know, whatever those variables are. But to assume that you can somehow have a functioning social system on a long-term basis that does not somehow honor and include the people involved is, I think, long-term just kind of naive. You know, it can happen mm-hmm. for a time. But, you know, what I would would propose that maybe an example would be this you know the the colonization of countries and continents that have happened historically. you know, to go in and impose a structure on people that's completely foreign to their understanding, their way of being, um, you know their their daily social existence. Um, you can do that, but the cost of imposing that structure on a long- term basis, usually becomes completely unsustainable. You know, If there's not some kind of a bottom-up contribution, um, a, a real living into the system itself by the people who are a part of it, then you're, you're really ultimately bound for failure.
0: Yes, and and many of the the authors in this book uh, give us a lot of uh, really um, scientific and empirical explanations of that that uh, of of the mechanisms through which motivation is sapped and through which people there are different types of resistance and when when there isn't this stakeholder involvement when people are not and this gets pointed out early on by um, Alexander Christakis when uh, people are not involved in the um, articulation of the problematique, right? When they're not involved in even describing what the problem is, uh, and he starts in his chapter talking about you know the early days of the Club of Rome, and uh, and that this uh, he points to what he he thinks is, a, is sort of a flaw in in that famous report is that it was a, a certain group of people were even in the ones de- defining the problem, let alone what actions should be taken, and there wasn't really wide um, Um, input from different types of stakeholders uh, as the Club of Rome began its initial work and um, so that takes us to Christakis who's um, a big figure sort of looming over a lot of the book both in his own chapter and other people that have worked with him I think been mentored by him um, and the whole role of um, strategic uh, dialogic design Um, so can you say a bit about about uh, Christakis, uh, his influence, and uh, what made it attractive to you to to have him so involved in this, and uh, what you think some of the most important lessons are, or things to think about from his work and the work of of those who have followed in his footsteps.
1: Um, I actually ran across Aleko's work when I was still a student working with Bela, and one of the things that attracted me to his work, and at that time he was still working with John Warfield, um, as they were beginning to put together a lot of the the foundational structures of the support systems for, you know, the decision-making processes and, you know, the variations that they went through. Um, what really struck me was that I seemed to have a, a sense about the, what it took in order to help people get through the process that was a step beyond just the ideal, you know, to, to bring people together in a setting and assume that they have the a an appropriate level of expertise about the topic, that they have the skill sets to be able to articulate and collaborate with each other, that they are able to work across the differences that might be involved in a, especially in a, you know, a widely diverse setting. Um, sometimes those were more ideal than practical, and ALECO had worked with John Warfield to come up with, um, you know, what what they felt like was a, a pretty practical. Facilitated process that brought people together that could deal with those differences, that could deal with the ideas, and bring them together into a, you know some kind of a coherent picture and design by the end of their three-day process or so. You know, um, having sat through a couple of the examples of those, you know, there aren't any perfect processes. You know, they all they all have um, kind mm-hmm. of approaches and. Underlying philosophies and, and limitations, but the fact that they had thought through an awful lot of it was really encouraging to me. You know, the fact that Aleko had had such a breadth of experience, starting as a theoretical physicist, and ended up working in you know this this whole realm of um, the identified problems uh, by the Club of Rome and and his work with Osborn and then development of problematique and understanding, you know, I think he I think he really worked. To try to get at some of those root issues, so that they could be addressed, you know, again, not always perfectly, but not not just ignored, mm-hmm. not just overlooked as something that was missing, and so his influence, um, I think, on an awful lot of the practitioners, you know, including a lot of the contributors to this book, um, was it's been strong, but I think well deserved, you know, in that he still continues mm-hmm. to to do his work. He's, I guess, mostly retired and in, uh, in Crete now but still active, still engaged with, um, with people that are continuing the work.
0: Yes. And, the, and his notion that you, that there can be a science of dialogue is, 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 is compelling. And the idea that, that, uh, there's a kind of rigor, uh, and a kind of, um, procedure that is hopefully not limiting and not too constraining, but, um, you know another theme I, in the book is this um this balance between autonomy and uh and homonomy if i'm pronouncing that correctly um between the individual's autonomous uh, nature and also coming back to the collective and that trying to find this delicate science of of trying to balance those those right. two impulses yes
1: yeah. that that work actually goes back to um to andres angiol who's a psychiatrist in the 40s that talked about um, his distinction was between autonomy and heteronomy, which was that that influence of the individual balanced against the influence of the collective. And so you can see this, you know, and, and as he stated, you know, it's never, really never an absolute either or. It's always a balance between. So you know you can look at different countries. In the U.S., we tremendously value independence, individualism, and we have governance structures that kind of reflect that. In other countries, um, you know, and I think interestingly, right now probably increasing numbers where the heteronomy—the you know—the larger social sphere or governance structures are tremendously overwhelming the individual choices and and expression of uh, of self. In a lot of other places so you know it's not necessarily a one is always better than the other i think there's a, a functional aspect but you know to just understand that they're always present that you have to balance those you really can't ignore either one and they always will not only influence each other they actually are co-creational
0: um so as Christakis develops, uh, develops his work, he comes up with a lot of, uh, with his foundational axioms for dialogic design science, which we, we won't go through all of them now, but they're, they're um, really fascinating as a, a way to structure the process of, of this kind of stakeholder engagement. And this idea that, that new, what he calls new geographies of languaging, making possible the constructions of new kinds of distinctions, and, and that literally new types of ontological entities become visible so you can spot something in the nature of a pattern or, or something that's, that's got some causal efficacy going on. And there's something that he identifies called the er- erroneous priorities effect. Can you tell us anything about that particular?
1: I'm trying to remember who, like who drew from um, a number of, of the collaborators he was working with and he ends up in a, you know, with a, a collection of what he you know, I think he and and the collaborators try to establish as sort of a, not a system of laws, but a a system of principles that really, that are sometimes are identified as uh, kind of pressure points when you're doing this work. Sometimes they're more necessary things that you just have to pay attention to because, you know, they're, they're things that are either, They're either critical points that get developed in the process, or they are important pieces that, if they get overlooked, get um, they become really important
0: oversights, if you will. Um, And I'm trying to remember which, which. Well, the the erroneous. What I remember about this one in particular, and I don't put you on the spot (laughs) because you didn't write all these (laughs) chapters, but. So uh, yeah. I just thought I'd toss that one out and see, but it's one that's it's one that stuck with me because it was it's fascinating to me to discover that um, that dot democracy this whole dot democracy thing is quite popular these days in terms of well let's give people the little sticky dots and everyone will vote on what are what are the priorities, but they're, they in the work they've done and this is this idea of, of trying to make a science of dialogic design it seems to me they've done this analytical work and realized that the things that groups agree are the most have the biggest impact in terms of what is the problem or what is the potential leverage point rarely end up winning the vote when it comes to what should we work on and so the 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 voting process of the dot democracy uh, or any of those other kinds of, of voting processes are not reflecting actually what are the highest impact, highest leverage, or biggest identified problems. And so there's this this mismatch. And so we we put a priority on something, and that it may not be the one that we think is right. the most significant. Yeah, that
1: all those principles really go back to um, the foundations that that Alecko was working with John Warfield on. So when I when I actually sat in on a couple of the, um, of the processes they had done, I mean, and, you know, John and Leco both worked in a lot of corporate settings. Interestingly, you know, they they weren't just doing sort of general things, but one that I sat in on, um, I had reviewed some information that John had done with, I think, a a major corporation and kind of watched him work through that. One that I sat in on live was actually an interesting example where, the discussion was around um, the implementation of how you how you provide accommodations for students who have been identified with disabilities okay so this mm-hmm. cut across all kinds of educational system It was done um you know in, in sort of a like a, like a regional approach to trying to help ed, you know small educational programs especially you know small rural settings they were equally um, required to provide accommodations for individual students, even though they had minimal resources to be able to try to do that. So, you know, the stakeholder group that was involved ranged from the school counselors to the psychologists who were outside the school system to, um, you know, parents, to even in some cases the students who had been identified, school administrators. Everyone had a vested interest in trying to reach a good resolution, but needless to say, everyone also had a very different perspective on their part of what the, the nature of the problem was, much less how it might best be solved. So to watch them go through the process, um, you know, it, it really was functionally it was a pairing of choices. So they would raise the question, mm-hmm. you know, if you were to accomplish this, how would it affect that? And it was a couple of days mm-hmm. of working through that with a, with a number of facilitators who were capturing the information in a computer system that would, at the end of the time, come up with a structured representation of connections between the issues. And that's what they used to find the largest leverage points. And it was through that process Mm. that they arrived at exactly this kind of of conclusion that, you know, what people assumed would be, if you just simply took a poll and said, okay, what's the most important thing? You know, what should we start on? Well, you're going to get a lot of opinions, you know, but they're going to obviously come from the perspectives of the people involved. It's only when you pull those together in some kind of a collective and structured way that they found that they could actually arrive at a, a solution that would have the best chance of being implemented.
0: Mm. Well, that's fascinating. I would love to be able to sit in as you have on some of these sessions. That's that's fantastic. Um, one of the next contributors uh, is Raul Espayo. And of course, talking about Project Cybersyn is, of which he was, I believe the scientific director, I think was his official title. Uh, it's a project that's gotten a fair amount of airtime on this channel. We talked to Eden Medina about her book, and and it's come up in some other some other discussions. Um, but it's really interesting to see. I think the most this is the most rigorous critique of it I've seen, <laughs> and it's by Raoul, who was an insider on it. Um, and he talked about the need for um, that Cybersyn's epistemological lens um, needed some revision. So I'm wondering if you might say something about the role of epistemology in these kinds of group discussions Um, that uh, Raul is talking about how the epistemological lens needs to include the first order sort of black box descriptions of what you see going on. And a second order observation of what he calls the inner conversations that govern the choices of the black box indices, because, of course, Cybersyn, and and I I refer those who who, uh, are not as familiar with it to go back to to find our our conversation with Eden Medina, but uh, was an attempt to... create a guidance system uh, control system for the uh, Chilean economy and this choice of indices so the choice uh, this again relates I guess just what we were just speaking about of what goes into the choice of what one considers to be a pertinent index uh, to decide how the governance uh, system is working well
1: just a, a little broader perspective about this chapter um, you know it as I was thinking through what should what could, ideally go into the book. I, I absolutely did not want to miss this piece because it seemed to me that such a large scale and really potentially important application, even though I'm not sure that Stafford Beer would have identified himself as a as a social system designer, but this application in a in a at a country level was just too important, you know, not to try to capture in some way. And I really, you know, as I thought through the the people that could potentially author the chapter, um, having Raul do it as a person on the ground from Chile, who had that perspective, was just the one that seemed to be, you know, enough different and valuable to me to to try to capture all of that. So, you know, you've you've got a a technical system, which is, you know, obviously not unusual in what people think about. Okay, well, let's bring in a. A governance system, but let's bring in a control system, or however they describe that. And often within that are embedded all kinds of assumptions. Obviously, you know, so you get to things like um, Peter Checklin's concept of Voltschenchong when he does soft systems methodology. Why that's important to capture? Because there's so there are so many unstated assumptions that go into that. You know, you can you can kind of start with well, so you know, if it's from an engineering standpoint, we'll simply um, you know we'll start with the, what, whatever the customer says is, is important. Coming with multitudes of assumptions about, you know, the customer's knowledge viewpoint and, you know, the breadth of how that's going to end up being implemented. So, you know, a, a lot of the emphasis in the cybernetic world, um, you know, coming from, I guess, really the, the 1970s on, was this concept of second order cybernetics of understanding that you've got the, the functional part of what goes on in what might look like a technical system. But you've also got the overlay of the context of, you know, not only how the system got decided and designed, as you've implied, but that it will continue to function within social systems, you know, a, a, unless you completely turn over, and I suppose there are Visions of that of totally turning over the operation of something to some you know to an artificial intelligence system. Um, It's still as long as there are humans around, it's embedded within human social systems at some level. You know they they are affected by it even if they aren't directly um, attempting to, to control it. And so this whole concept of who's involved and how and how the decisions get made and what that how that affects what the ultimate design and creation are are massively important questions, but they're ones that are also, um, you know, from a project management standpoint, sometimes considered, well, that's kind of expensive or that's going to delay, you know, that's going to create more time. You know, is it worth it? You know, we're we're on a project timeline, get it done. I don't think that's what went into the Cybersyn project, but I think that ultimately there probably were people on the receiving end. Who looked at what was being what was involved and said, "Well, okay, we want to create a system to, you know, to monitor and ultimately control. So, you know, we'll put this into place." Um, it obviously no one, no one anticipated at the time the political ramifications of what was going to change in the country over those
0: three years. Yeah and something Raul mentions is the mismatch between um who was making the decisions about indices that 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 the political structures of hierarchical systems did not change enough to match the kind of distributed types of decision making that that Cybersyn and that the VSM, the viable systems model, is designed to, to uh, facilitate. So the structure of the VSM is one thing, but who's deciding on indices, who's uh, providing that information could, wasn't able to transcend the sort of old-fashioned hierarchical structures of the government that was trying to implement the VSM. I, so I think mismatch, for a lot of people who yeah.
1: look at the viable systems model, You know, because it is somewhat prescriptive, you know, you you basically take the template and you overlay it onto the organization or the larger system that you're looking at. Um, I'm afraid that people might have a lot of assumptions about, well, then it seems to be kind of self-evident, right? You just match the pieces to the the parts of Mm -hmm. VSM, um, you know, and you then get a a sense about what's working and what's not. I think this is just one of those examples where you have to step back Mm -hmm. and say, you know, every one of these decision points, every one of these, um, you know, these crucial pressure points along the process is really important. You know, it's not just going to design Mm -hmm. itself. It's not going to create itself. It's not going to fix itself.
0: Right. And I think he also mentions that, that sort of idea of saying, rather than Reimagining the entire structure around the VSM, it was sort of saying, okay, well, this thing we've already got, that's kind of like system three. And that thing over here, that's kind of like system two. And sort of just shoving the existing structures into the boxes of the VSM, as opposed to saying, well, we've got to actually think wider than that. And how do we actually start yeah, rewiring in, the in whole thing? in this
1: size of an application, you can imagine how that happens. You know, it's like just be, be expedient. You know, this is this is good enough. Get that done. Um, you know, we've got so much time and money. Um, make that one work. You know, just kind of shave off the corners and it'll fit okay.
0: Right, right. And with a government that's facing so much pressure internally, externally, who doesn't know how long it's got to try and make a difference? I mean, the fact that they attempted such a such an ambitious project under the the kind of um, political and social climate is still astonishing and very easy to understand why, as you say, this was not a something yeah. you wanted to miss out on. Well, and it's, it's
1: exactly, I'm sorry, well, um, and, and sorry it's exactly yeah. the, the challenge that, you know, is going to come up at, you know, and it shows up in some of the other chapters, but shows up most broadly just in the whole topic, I think, Tom, that you're always um, balancing between the ideal, you know, some concept that maybe the ideal is just a greenfield and you can you know, you, you've got nothing but space to be able to create in. And the reality that there is always a lot of ongoing world into which you eventually have to implement this. And, you know, the, the space between those mm-hmm. is really the critical, the critical place to understand.
0: Right. And that you're revising something that's in motion, right? The, the, the Chilean, the Chilean economy could not st- stop and take a time out <laughs> while it w- while we f- they figured out what they were going to do it's 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 you know it's like laying the track down in front of the moving train so to speak it's uh, it's ongoing one of my favorite chapters is peter jones's chapter design principles where he talks about design principles for complex social systems and he really exposes something that i hadn't thought that much about because talking about design And a lot of that, I I guess some of it has happened since the publication of the book, but the idea of certainly this expanded sense of what design means now and that everyone designs to some degree and it's not just artifacts and and products, but it's processes, experiences, interactions, all of these things are now, we understand them as in the purview of design and the ideas of of, uh, design and and systems theory talking to each other. But in his chapter, Peter points out that actually within the 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 literature uh a lot of the there isn't actually that much direct linkage of the of systems theory to design (laughs) they're talked about sort of side by side but not always in a way that we can understand where exactly or at least have some ideas of where exactly certain systems principles can get instantiated within certain design principles or, or design projects he does quite a quite an interesting um literature review of that i I'm interested and so he talks about his his wanting to um link generative design guidelines to systems theoretical principles rather than just enumerating them side by side which is actually done uh more often
1: well it's just i i really appreciate Peter contributing the chapter um because it is the it is in its in know in its own way kind of the anomaly um you know you've got not a systems Theorist or practitioner approaching the concept of design, you've got a designer coming kind of from the other side of the bridge, if you will, of you know saying, "Well, here are all the formal principles of design," and he teaches design and practices it, um, but has you know a, really been fascinated and, and come into the world of systems, concepts, and theories as well. So you know he reaches the intersection just from the other side, and so his way of understanding it. Where, you know, I think a lot of people who start with the systems orientation, you know, those of us, including me, I guess, who, you know, are very interested in it, but really don't have a formal background, um, you know, approach a certain level of understanding about the formalities of design. But to come from the other side, to know the formalities of design as a profession and bring that to the perspective of systems is, I think, a, a really valuable other insight.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and he, he reveals how much work there is to do to really make them speak to each other to the degree or enable them to speak to each other to the degree that would be most beneficial. There's this notion of design as a third culture. Uh, and this has come up in, in, in other conversations we've had on this channel and amongst other people I know within the cybernetics and systems communities. There was a period where there was this attempt to formulate something called design science. And to put design on a more scientific uh, framework, and people like um, Cross and others, and Peter picks this up: that design as a as a third culture, not science, not the art and the humanities, but its own particular, um, it's a, a third sort of branch of knowledge or a, a, a sort of domain. Um, is there anything any reflections you have on that notion?
1: It's, uh, I think it's a critical question. And I think it's one that we probably haven't come very close to, um, through really resolving uh, as much in the systems realm as any place else, frankly. So there's, there's a perspective on science that its purpose is to objectively understand nature and, you know, everything that has come about. There is, um, you know, if you think about the, the two cultures uh, perspective of, of CP Snow, you know, there's this other side, mm-hmm. which is, you know, this large body of artistic, um, you know, other, other kinds of approaches, ways of thinking that, you know, are really more the human realm, but of innovation, creativity, you know, what, whatever gets included in that kind of the, the liberal arts side of the university. This design thing really is an interesting other piece because it, it somehow you have to assume that if design is, in fact, even possible, then you're talking about something that um, is, certainly if it's in a human realm, it's beyond just the inevitable evolution that happens in the universe you know so depending on your perspective about that i mean there's the you know the beliefs and cosmologies of grand design or or whatever people might believe but if you if you bring it down to humans and social system design then you really get into the questions about things like free will so to what degree can humans actually create a future that is different than something that might otherwise have just inevitably come about Do we have the capacity to consciously create the systems that we live in or even consciously affect them? Because if we do, then you've got a range, um, you know, degrees of freedom, if you will, about the world that extend beyond just the, the natural influences that, you know, might be typical of what's discovered in science. And so, in that way, yes, it is a different realm of exploration. You know, to what degree is it somehow another realm where it's not entirely defined by any of the others? You know, you, you get into, um, you know, even questions about engineering and technology. You well, know, you can do the specific technology. You know, you can build, make something, um, but. When you then think about a larger realm of, well, it's it's not just a something that's going to act in isolation. It's just something that's going to become a part of the ongoing biosphere and affect and become a part of evolution. Then again, it's, it's a different question about, so what are our capabilities? What are our capacities for not only being able to do that, but being able to do that with some kind of a moral or ethical lens?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's beautifully said, and I think that goes—that really articulates what's at the crux of this entire book and this entire project, as as I've read it. Um, Speaking of our capabilities, um, a number of the later chapters, and some in very specific ways, um, get into this idea of new models of democracy, new models of governance, and as one author even goes as far as to say that uh, you know representative democracy is just outdated <laughs> the way we do it it's just it's it we need to move on and so these ideas of a more direct democracy more consultative democracy you've got um tom flanagan and uh, is it 21st century mm-hmm. agora's um group who are interested in how do you start i mean it sounds like uh, aleko and others you know are, are already doing consultations with larger groups of people than we could imagine in the past hundreds thousands of people but this idea of still trying to scale it up even further to even to the size of a nation state or beyond given that you know the globalization is is you know making us question whether the nation state is even the 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 correct uh place to look for levers of governance um but this idea can we use the current technologies or the developing technologies to leverage up a more direct and inclusive kind of democracy? Uh, someone later in the book, I wish I could remember who it was, says rather than um, saying to go to discussion centric rather than vote centric. And rather than say, you get to vote every five years. No, you get to actually get involved in debate and discussion on in an ongoing way. So, um, But of course, the idea of you know, think of the law of requisite variety, I mean, that having that kind of, uh, influx of variety of opinion, et cetera, where do you, what do you, do you want, can you reflect on, on some of the contributions that address this issue and maybe add some of your own thoughts about the feasibility, desirability, et cetera, of trying to use these platform, these amazing social platforms of, of the internet, et cetera, to actually scale up and create a new model of democratic governance.
1: Well, needless to say, Tom, these are massive challenges, um, even a concept before you yep. begin to, to think about what they would mean in, in any kind of application. Um, but they're really, really important questions. So, you know, you it, it's easy to begin with um, maybe an overly simplistic or even naive perspective that, you know, it should just all be absolute pure democracy. We've got technology now. So, you know, basically every important question that comes up, you know, people just, vote on Twitter and, you know, you collect them all and you've got a, got an opinion, you've got a, a decision. Um, you can see how that might not be the most ideal. So there's mm-hmm. some balance between people's connectedness to a particular issue, people's sense of expertise about particular things. There's some kind of a middle balance between, you know, the everybody being represented in a way that is moral, ethical, um, even practical, and the process of decision-making, you know, about what kinds of issues in what timelines and at what scale. So, you know, it, it would be pretty easy to say, well, you know, if you look around, the current systems probably are pretty, um, insufficient at this point relative to what could be. But what the next step is, you know, that's that's a different kind of question. So the technology certainly allows a lot more people to be more informed and to be more interactive about issues. How to, how to now step on the other side and look at the human level to determine, you know, so what is the most effective way? Efficient productive to actually create the decisions that become then those points of change in the social systems that's a part that I don't know we've explored that much so you know you you get mm-hmm. a sense certainly there's a strong strong ethical perspective by most of the authors in this book that I don't disagree with that people do have a right to be involved there there really is a a strong sense of the of the rights of individuals globally. To step outside the book and some some work I've actually been getting into um, really currently is looking at some other work on decision-making. And one of the research studies that uh, I've actually been working on just in the last week is looking at this question of decision-making. And basically what it says is that there is a there's a balance that as long as it's a simple problem, then having more opinions involved is likely to get you to um, a better answer. Sort of the um, the wisdom of crowds. Okay, so mm-hmm. if you've got a fairly simple problem, and you take a whole lot of opinions. You know, you you can probably get to something that is going to be a pretty reasonable answer, rather than, for instance, just taking you know the loudest opinion. That begins to flip when you get to more complex problems. And with more complex problems, simply having a lot more opinions isn't necessarily helpful. You really do need to rely, in that case, on better expertise. And finding that expertise—it's not necessarily just you know a, a one or two experts, it, and it's not just a you know relying on the best or loudest. It still involves in you know including more opinions. But the more complex the issue, it seems that. A smaller number of people with higher expertise probably is a better way to approach that. Now, again, that's, that's one mm. you know study or a small set of studies that is leading in that direction. Mm. But I think it's that kind of work that is going to be really helpful in, in terms of moving towards a next way of, of beginning to sort out. You know, If you're not going to try to make a pure democracy around the globe, then what do you do? You know, what's what's the way we begin to mm. approach this? And it's that kind of research, I think, that we're going to have to keep working on and relying on to take us to the next steps.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, this loops back to some of the early chapters in the book we've already spoken about, because as early as Cyberson, uh Stafford Beer and his team had developed this algodonic meter where there was going to be some kind of direct feedback to the government, not uh, on an issue by issue basis. It was as simple as, you know, happy, right. not happy uh, and the setting. But there was was this desire to somehow have real time feedback. To the government even, uh, you know, in this project in, in the early 70s. And then I think also about the strategic, uh, the dialogic design, uh, the science of dialogic design that, that uh, Christakis and, and colleagues have done where um, also thinking about requisite okay. variety that they, they are at least um, trying to identify the widest number of types of stakeholder and knowing that you can't have every single person in the room, that there is still a sort of benchmark of variety that you have to achieve, that if there is a constituency that you have not identified, or you, you try and identify those constituents to make sure that there is a representation from every category of stakeholder, for lack of a better term, that you, you're you still attenuating variety to some degree, but hopefully having the requisite variety that the representation is, yeah. is ethical and um, and also most well, effective. If
1: you miss if you miss an important issue of relevance, you know that it's going to be you know whatever the the solution or decision is going to be somewhat imperfect. You know somehow mm-hmm. you have to account for as much as possible the important and relevant factors that affect a particular issue or system. You know is there a perfect way of doing that? Um, not that I've seen yet. You know West Churchman talked about kind mm-hmm. of a a a spectrum of different ways ultimately of sweeping in you know the attempt to try to make sure that as much as possible all relevant information had been included or accounted for in some way. Um, how you go about that, you know again, not simple, but I think it's it's not something to just sort of generalize and say, oh yeah, well, you know we should be. Uh, inclusive as much as possible, and then make the best of it. I think we're going to have to get to some next steps of being a lot clearer. So, what's really involved in this particular issue? What do we need to include? How do we foresee what might be the possible outcomes? Whether that's you know running some scenario planning in advance, whether it's you know making sure that you've got um, pretty diverse teams of experts to be able to help think through even before you begin. You know, are there things we may have missed? Are there are there relevant factors that, you know, anybody can foresee? Um, And maybe you do a first round and, you know, test it out before you make the decision process just to to make sure that we're starting to account for an awful lot of these factors. Uh, You know, the, the more complex the world gets, the more important that becomes.
0: Mm hmm. Well, these are definitely the sticky and very, very challenging uh, questions that uh, this work points to and that, as you say it, uh, we need to keep keep chipping away at. So, um, are there any particular contributions or themes in the book that we haven't touched on yet? That uh, as we move towards uh, the close of our time uh, to talk, are uh, there any that you would like to comment on or draw our attention to that we haven't spoken about yet?
1: Maybe just to point to the last couple of chapters, the last two, um, simply because they are different contributors um, kind of outside of, of the realm of people that had, you know, worked with each other or, you know, particularly with, with Aleko and some of those foundations. Right. So
0: right. We get the open yeah, so, systems so perspective. Marilyn yeah. Emery, who yeah.
1: is the widow of Fred Emory of, you know, Emery and Trist and in the um, the Tavistock kind of work. You know, Marilyn has carried on mm-hmm. that work um, through her own theory building and application. And so her chapter comes across as as I think an interesting contrast um, in a lot of ways. You know, it's very ideal. But it is also very much in the cultural perspective of Australia. And so her proposal, while, you know, the reaction of a few people that I had talked to or heard from, for instance, the U.S., you know, is like, mm, really? But, yeah, I think mm. from her perspective, really, you know, when she talks about, mm. um, you know, the completely self-governing work groups. Is, is that a real possibility? Well, the, the truth is (laughs) it's actually been tried in places which haven't been that well publicized. And to the degree that they could be protected, it was actually more functional than what people might have expected. You know, can people truly get more involved than what they typically find themselves now? I think very possibly, you know, and, and her work really points to that. Um, you know, mm-hmm. to to the degree that people, I think, have become so accustomed to simply going to a workplace and having little, if any, say about any of the processes they're involved in, they pretty much, you know, go in, plug in, get the work done, and leave. Um, you know, this idea that somehow they can be more of a um, a participant and a decision maker, even at a very low level is so foreign that it's really kind of hard to even have that discussion. Um, so mm-hmm. what she proposes is is pretty ideal, but I think not really outside the realm of reason. Um, the balance of that is Doug Walton's chapter. And, you know, Doug had been a, um, a senior change person inside of Cisco and then some other places um, more recently. But, you know, his is, I, I think, that practical calibration of, you know, having also been a student of Bela's, to look at idealized systems design, and have to interpret that to a, an, an approach or a way that you could implement that inside of a uh, U.S.-based corporation. You know, it, it's not just a simple translation. It does take some some real adaptation, but it's also absolutely possible. You know, it's possible to work from the principles, even if you don't go in and try to teach all the theories. It's possible to do the implementation Mm -hmm. and to get people involved without necessarily having to, you know, bring them up to a PhD level of understanding about, you know, the systemic principles
0: and theories. Right. Well, thank you for that. I think it was it was very important to draw attention to those two chapters. And and Marilyn Emery's chapter is, like you say, there there is an ideal nature to it, but it is very thoughtful in terms of the the two different types of, of work cultures that you're talking about, where the prescribed work culture and then this idea of teams that self-organize. And I think we see, yeah, we see a lot more of those around us these days than I think, as you, as you say, are, are reported. Um, and when they're bound together by, when that autonomy is given and that our autonomy is, is recognized, the responsibility that the members of the team start to take towards one another um, is a very powerful yes. force. And that uh, the, the ways that the groups create and, and self-assign which part of the work gets done by whom, uh, I think we see more and more of that around us all the well, time. Well, it
1: really gets back to, I think, some of Bela's fundamental beliefs, where when you begin to marry the right to participate in design with a responsibility to participate, they they are mm. self-reinforcing.
0: Right. Oh, I think that's a perfect note to 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 draw our discussion to a close. And I'll move to our our last question. You've you've already mentioned a little bit. You've alluded to some work you're doing on decision making processes. But is there anything you can tell us about projects you're working on now, and what we might look forward to from you uh, in the future? Um, well,
1: projects in terms of additional publications. Um, I'm actually working again with Jim Kojima, who initiated this translational system science series. And hopefully within the next year, mm-hmm. we'll have a, a reference book out from Springer, um, the Handbook of System Sciences, which um, will be mm-hmm. some number of chapters, probably 30 plus chapters, um, you know, by, by many other, uh, by a broader range of contributors to try to create um, a, a basic reference book really for, really for large universities. That's where the, the Springer reference books are likely to end up. So people that may not have an orientation mm-hmm. but at least can get an introduction hopefully within you know the sphere of their own sphere of their own fields and professions but then also be exposed to the larger realm across the you know the entire spectrum of what's covered in the handbook um, you know in mm-hmm. in application um, it's interesting because I find myself you know whether it's purpose whether it's intentional or not i um, often drawn to things like small projects in the very small town I, where I live in Appalachia, where you know, a, a local mm-hmm. organization is trying to go through its own changes. Um, you know, and I have had you know, now a few decades of experience of, of thinking about change and thinking about the ways it happens and the theories. And to walk into a small organization that's trying to go you know, through some fundamental changes in a small community It is still all the same hard work. You know, it doesn't happen Mm -hmm. simply just because you know more of the theories. It's really helping people grasp with their situation and some concept of what can be changed and how they go about it.
0: Mm. Mm. Wonderful. Well thank you so much for your time Gary. We look forward to the Systems Handbook very much and uh hopefully we'll be able to talk to you and maybe some of the other contributors as it comes along. And yes, that Translational Science series is full of amazing titles. I think we've talked to uh, done at least one other of them on this show and I've got a couple of coming up. So that that series is a very rich uh place for uh systems and cybernetics thinking um right. and and great writing and uh and fodder for our show of course thank you so much gary uh we look forward to talking to you again thank you so much for taking the time to be with us we've been talking to gary metcalf about his edited book social systems and design out from springer here on new books in systems and cybernetics a podcast channel of the new books network we'll talk to you again soon